Hello, my name is Andre Gonawala, and I'd like to welcome you to the first edition of Sandboxing, where we're going to be taking a look at some of the biggest issues and potential solutions facing defense operations and strategy. This first series is called Sandboxing Contested Logistics, and we're going to be talking to key experts, leaders, stakeholders, and commercial actors to source a variety of perspectives on contested logistics. Any future conflict, war, and battle will always rely on efficient and effective logistics. In today's world, we have layers of multifaceted threats, all of which can lead to significant disruption of our global supply chain. However, our government and private sector holds a lot of innovative thinking that can bridge those gaps and offer dual-use solutions. How do we build conversations between commercial and public sectors, however? Well, my answer, in a biased way, is this podcast. We want to use this platform to bring folks from across the spectrum of contested logistics issues to talk about this key issue and what we can do to prepare for the next great power conflict. Uh, on a personal note, uh, I am Andre. I'm a program analyst with a company called BMNT uh, on contract to support the U.S. Navy organization called Naval X. We want to work to address these contested logistics issues outside of this Zoom room with many of you in the audience listening. Uh, therefore, in the description for this podcast, you'll find a bit.ly link uh, where you can fill out your information so we can get in touch with you. Uh, that link is bit.ly backslash sandboxing defense. Please fill that out because we want to have conversations with you. You can fill out your information and we can, you know, take this conversation, take this mission outside of this uh, virtual platform we're on and maybe get on the phone. Our first episode to introduce this series on contested logistics features Lieutenant General Michael Dana, who's retired right now. He works for Palace Advisors, but he used to serve as the head logistician for the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, this episode will be an introduction to contested logistics, uh, talking about the key challenges and some thinking around generic solutions uh, that can be utilized. Uh, and General Dana was one of the key military leaders who spent a career aiming to resolve these massive challenges. Uh, without further ado, here's General Mike Dana. Thank you. Hi, my name is Andre Gonawella. I am the host of Sandboxing Contested Logistics, and welcome to the first edition of the Standalone uh, Podcast Series, uh, where we're going to take a look at some of the biggest issues and potential solutions uh, facing the contested logistics space as we try to figure out how we can maintain our military supply chains during times of conflict, disaster, and other crises. Uh, I'm honored to be joined today by Lieutenant General Retired uh, Mike Dana, uh, who is an expert on strategic planning organizational efficiency and problem solving. Uh, Lieutenant General Dana recently retired after 37 years of service in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, having last served as the director of the Marine Corps staff. Uh, during uh, Lieutenant General Dana's decades of service, uh, he was a head logistician for the Marine Corps. Uh, he deployed around 10 times and served on joint duty about three times, including in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, he has developed a particular expertise in autonomous systems uh, and additive manufacturing, and he currently serves as a senior director uh, with Palace Advisors, in addition to other positions across uh, a lot of cool organizations doing work at the intersection of defense and the commercial world. So, uh, Lieutenant General Dana, thank you so much for joining me here today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to the team. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, Lieutenant General, can you tell us a little bit about your own career and your background uh, and what your authorities were as a deputy commandant for installations and logistics? And I guess what that position entailed. So he did a great job of uh, capturing my career path. Uh, the only thing I would just add is I'm from upstate New York originally. had six uncles in World War II, and my favorite uncle uh, was the Marine. So he he steered me in that direction. I was commissioned in 82 and, as you said, did 37 years um, I think for the purpose of this uh, discussion today, I think what's important is I was fortunate enough to spend two years as the Director of Strategy and Policy, J5, at U.S. Indo-PACOM Command, you know, working the, the China uh, challenge. It really provided some, you know, for me, a great learning experience, had a great boss, and, you know, talk more about this later. But, you know, the, the China problem sets a very, very challenging problem set because uh, economically we're tied to them. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that we could get along and cooperate, but there's many reasons we don't. Uh, but I just think as we look at that Pacific fight, uh, a way to 
view the battle space is to view it through a World War II lens. I'm kind of jumping in right now, but I, if you don't mind, that's what I'd like to do is if you look at a potential fight with China, uh, you know, what are the challenges that would come with that? And I would say the, the first would be time distance. Uh, that hasn't changed. The geography and the geometry of the Pacific state, you know, stayed the same since World War II. You know, aircraft move a little bit faster today. But one thing the United States does extremely well in terms of strategic mobility is move people and material and sustainment from point A to point B. I mean, this goes all the way back to the, the Civil War where we move things by coastal ships, by steamships on the Mississippi River, by railroad, by wagon. You know, the U.S. military has always been very good about what I call the big lift, okay, getting things from point A to point B. But in, in conflicts in the past, and especially in World War II, you know, we're moving a lot of mass. I mean, we're literally overwhelming our enemies, you know, with aircraft and with tanks and vehicles and troops. And I think as you kind of look to a future fight with China, it might not play out that way. Another challenge, I think, with a China fight, and Andrew, by the way, jump in, because when I go hot mic, you, know, you can you can rain me back in. But, yeah, no uh, worries. <laughs> but I think <laughs> the next thing is, as you look at it, is some folks sit there and go, okay, fight against China, they're, we're going to be fighting on what they call exterior lines. They're going to be fighting on interior lines just because of time distance again. And I would say that's true. But if you look at the World War II uh, ex uh, experience, you know, with Japan, in, in theory, they were operating on interior lines and we were operating on exterior lines. Can you talk but, a bit about what the interior lines and the exterior lines means in the context? Yes. Yeah. So if you look at time distance to move uh, logistics, personnel, equipment, literally uh, halfway across the globe, great, much greater distances. And it's, you know, we're operating on exterior lines because we're coming from a home base in the United States in World War II. And we're projecting that power on 5,000 ships, black and gray bottom, literally all over the world. But, you know, with obviously focus on the Pacific and its long distances. The Japanese did not have as long a distance to transit with aircraft, with ships to, to go to the places that they invaded and then set up, you know, their military forces. So same thing, if you look at the, again, the geography and the, what I call the geometry of the Pacific fight today, you know, China has shorter distances to go to places like Guam, uh, you know, somewhere in the Philippines archipelago, God forbid, Taiwan, you know, mm -hmm. extremely close, or perhaps even on the peninsula, the Grand Peninsula. So that exterior and interior lines is, you usually, in a military sense, have uh, better ability to reinforce uh, troops and concentrate forces if you're operating on shorter interior lines. And then exterior lines, you have a longer way to go, which means your supply chain and your uh, modes and modality of movement, they're more vulnerable to attack. But I think, if you, again, if you look at what happened in World War II, we literally, due to our very capable submarine force, shredded the interior lines of the Japanese, sank a lot of their merchant shipping. So the discussion exterior interior, you can you can debate that one way or the other. Then next thing is with China, you've got a very, uh, very formidable uh, missile threat. And that is of great concern that feeds into their anti-access area denial capability. And then we would need to find ways to combat that. And with the missile threat, if you're hit in a certain location, the truth is you're going to have to have the ability to either be survivable, you know, with ballistic missile defense, anti-air defenses, or you're going to need the, the ability to regenerate that capability. And another way to, uh, to avoid the threat is to be much greater uh, dispersion throughout the, the Pacific, which sounds good. Again, in theory, it's a little bit harder in practice yeah. because, because again, if you're spreading forces, you know, throughout the AOR, you got to have the, the ability when you're projecting lethality to concentrate that lethality, that destructive power, either kinetically or not kinetically. It could be, you know, with missiles and systems like that or a cyber attack. But you, you need to look at the, the laydown of forces and how are you going to bring those together to achieve optimal effect against uh, the enemy. Then I think the other thing I'd say is the challenge that logisticians have today is the, the fact that we're a hybrid force. And what I mean by that is it's a blend of a second industrial revolution and a fourth industrial revolution force. Second industrial revolution is the United States and World War II mm -hmm. churning out 
all the material, in fact, two thirds of all the war material for the allies. And that conflict was produced by United States factories. You know, we produced 303,000 aircraft, 1.5 million vehicles. I mean, we, that's second industrial revolution, tanks, you know, planes, motor vehicles, armored personnel carriers. But then if you look to the, today, we still have a lot of those like legacy systems, but more advanced. But the more advanced they become, think of an MRAP, a mine-resistant ambush platform. Think of MRAPs and JLTVs and all these great, very protective and very capable platforms, but they're more logistically intensive and they you know, need more maintenance, need more fuel. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to know that you know, for logisticians today, you've got to support the, uh, I don't want to use the word legacy force because the systems are very good and very uh, powerful, but you've got older systems that have a high logistics footprint and requirement. Then you've got new emerging systems, think hypersonics and, and other missile systems arrays and other you know, anti-ship missiles that aren't necessarily as heavy in footprint, but still have a logistics requirement. So you need to do both. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we mentioned World War II quite a bit. I mean, obviously, you know, the United States versus Japan, you know, as you talked about that interior line versus the exterior line. I want to take a step back now and sort of just ask you about, you know, how as, you know, the maintenance of our supply chains, military logistics in these overseas theater in the Indo-Pacific sort of changed over perhaps, I mean, almost the, ha the past century, right? Like we've had the Korean War, we've had the Vietnam War. And certainly there's been much change over the decades. Of course, those are all different conflicts in terms of requirements and in terms of what they entailed and in terms of the enemy we were fighting. But uh, how has that approach changed, I guess, perhaps, you know, focusing in on those conflicts, but also just taking a step back and, you know, on sort of the Indo-PACOM theater? Yeah, so I think if you, you know, look at the Korean conflict, I mean, we could not have fought Korea if we had not just fought World War II. So literally, if you, you know, Google online Barstow 1950, you know, there's pictures of Marines going up to the Barstow, which is one of our logistics depots, and just pulling equipment from World War II, putting it on ship and sailing it for Korea. So we had all the, the material, so to speak, from World War II that we could still fight, you know, in the, in the Korean conflict. I think that the thing that's challenging for, the, for us in the future today, and this, this ties into the war against the war, uh, excuse me, GWAT, Iraq and Afghanistan is we have got a legion of young uh, men and women that served in that conflict and did a great job. But logistically, at the strategic and operational level, we could do essentially anything we wanted because we had unfettered lines of communication. We could move troops and material you know, to Iraq, to Afghanistan. And that movement all the way from the United States to that area, you know, we had supremacy in terms of protecting those lines of communication. At the tactical end, when you look in Iraq and Afghanistan convoys, uh, you know, that got dicey and that was problematic. So I just think that as we look to a future conflict with China, we're going to be contested at the strategic level, the operational level, and the tactical level. And we're going to have to be able to design uh, protective measures, regenerative capabilities uh, to ensure that we have a, a secure supply chain and, and as, as importantly, secure lines of communication to get material to the fight. And then when material is destroyed, they get it you know, refurbished, refit, and then bring new material in. For sure. And, and this may be a dumb question, but I just feel like I want to ask it for those who may not be as familiar with, I mean, this content, these topics and so on. Obviously, we have a lot of challenges with China uh, and a potential conflict just because of, you know, how far we had to go to operate. Uh, do any of these challenges exist, say, with a potential conflict, say, like Russia? Obviously, we have our allied powers there. We have NATO there. But are any of these challenges that, you know, you're talking about, are they applicable to that sort of zone as well? Yeah, I would say, you know, globally, because, you know, with a, in a fight against Russia, and, and I should probably say this in the beginning, is the last thing we want to do is get into a conflict with Russia or China. I mean, we, we do not. And just in terms of the, the weapon array, weapons array that we have and the different uh, capabilities that the enemy brings to the table. But these time distance challenges, these operational strategic domains being contested, uh, you know, in a fight against Russia uh, or uh, China, that would be the case. And if I could, I'm going to kind of focus back, you know, to China. 
is in, in terms of um, logistics support and designing a way to sustain forces in a contested logistics environment, uh, there's a couple main uh, points I'd like to bring up. First is a lot of times you hear folks go, hey, uh, logistics is the pacing function. And the truth is, after 37 years, I have a thick skin. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps, you, you, know, you get yelled at at times and that type of thing. But I really don't like that term. It's a pacing function because it immediately subliminally is that it's a limiting factor. It's a handicap. It's something that, you know, as a commander that, you know, I have to pay attention to because it's going to limit what I want to do. I would say the way to look at it is logistics is an enabling function. Logistics provides you the, the, the sustainment wherewithal to move forces, support forces, and fight. That's what logistics is all about. And as we look to the Pacific, we know that, again, it's strategic operational tactical, we're gonna be contested. So there's, I, I believe there's a very uh, proven way to work through those challenges. First is your logistics design. And what I failed to mention earlier is if you look at traditional warfare, you know, the Korean War, Vietnam, uh, World War II, in essence, it's what I call a hub, spoke, and node concept. So picture that, you know, the, the hub is a large logistics base, let's say Pearl Harbor, West Coast of the United States. And then it's projecting power in multimodal, either by sea or air, on a spoke to the theater. And then once in the theater, it's being distributed to different nodes. You know, in, Af in Iraq and Afghanistan, the example would be C-17 aircraft would land at either El Assad or at Bastion in Afghanistan. That's that's a statement of supplies and you know, 463 El Palos comes off the, the aircraft and then it's loaded on 53s or 22s, helicopter aircraft or vertical lift aircraft. And then it's being moved to fire uh, FOBs, forward operating bases. And then you know those company gunnies are moving that logistics even farther into the hinterlands to support the, the troops. That's mm -hmm. hub, sp hub spoke and node. It's something that we've been working on, uh, at least with my coworkers, we look at contestant logistics, is maybe we should look at two things that the private sector does. There's a book called Logistics Clusters, you know, which talks about in different parts of the, uh, literally around the globe, and the example they use is in Spain, is where they find a location where they find different providers of logistics and they build a hub that's a, a sustainment projection center, for lack of a better word, excuse me. And those clusters can be are located in a way that they're not redundant to other clusters, but they really kind of complement each other. So this leads to kind of the thought of what we call mesh logistics. And what mesh logistics would be is think literally multiple Amazon fulfillment centers close enough to complement each other, but far enough away not to be redundant and to provide that sustainment. Yeah. And, and then go ahead. I'm sorry, Andrew. Oh, no, no. I'm just acknowledging. Yeah. yeah. So as you look at that mesh logistics design, what we would do is you look at the Pacific is we would do what they call logistics intelligence preparation at battle space, which is a logistics IPB. Commanders in the military do it. It's really a commander's assessment because they look at their operating area, their forces, the enemy, everything they're going against. So when you do that logistics IPB, you're looking at the you're trying to find key littoral terrain. In other words, areas that are going to be very much required to be jumping off points or sustainment sources in the theater. And some areas that come to mind would be in the Philippines, there would be multiple locations, Australia, uh, Singapore. So you look at the, you know, literally look at 52% of the world's surface and you find through your logistics IPV those key nodal points where either ships, aircraft, you know, inland transportation and infrastructure would help support you move sustainment from point A to point B. So you, you do a log IPB. Then once you do that log IPB, you do what we call set the theater action. So when you have a discussion with Indo-PACOM or with any, you know, U.S. Transcom, DLA, but specifically PACOM, you would look at, okay, how are you setting the theater? What's that term mean? Set the theater means that you are creating turnkey logistics agreements, as you mentioned this a few minutes ago, with host nation and allies and partners that when the balloon goes up, when hostilities begin, you already have in place sustainment arrangements, you know, with the host nation 
So you have access and the ability to get logistics. So you're setting the theater. And that's absolutely critical because setting the theater, not only does it prepare you for the fight, but it acts in deterrence because the enemy knows, well, hey, they're, they're setting up these different locations. And in terms of being able to deploy and employ, yeah, they've done their homework. Because by the way, when you do that logistics prep of the battle space, the enemy, red, is looking at us, blue logistics, and we're looking at their logistics and we're looking for centers of gravity. We're looking for critical vulnerabilities that we can exploit and attack. We're looking how to protect those uh, capabilities. So you're doing that log IPB and then you're setting the theater. And then, you know, once you've set the theater, and by the way, if you set the theater, you need the authorities to do these arrangements with local uh, entities and with allies and host nation. And the authorities, the good news is the Joint, Chapter, Joint Staff J4, it's not, I don't think it's signed yet, but it has produced a very good document that lays out all the authorities that military forces in the Pacific would need to do these handshake, turnkey, resourced uh, agreements to make sure that we have the, the capacity and the capability we need. So that was a, a set the theater 101 and, uh, and ready for other questions. No, much appreciated. And, you know, when you talk about the sort of those nodal points uh, with those host nations, are those specifically different from what we think of when we talk about, say, forward distribution sites, for example, ports, uh, material processing centers, and so on? Like, for example, when I think of a forward distribution uh, site, I think of Guam, uh, for example, right? Uh, am, am I correct? And, uh, you know, when you talk about those nodal points and then we talk about the forward distribution sites, how crucial, I guess, are the forward distribution sites in enabling that logistical supply chain? Because, you know, if I'm China, right, and if I'm at war with the United States, you know, God forbid, I'd want to take out, you know, those forward distribution sites, right? I'd want to take out Guam. And yeah. as you talk about the interior lines and the exterior lines, China is quite close to Guam. Uh, right. So curious on your take on that. So and not meant to be a flippant statement, but you, know, you always hope for the best and plan for the worst. So without a doubt, uh, Guam is going to be, for lack of a better term, target for missiles. It's going to definitely be high on the uh, the enemy's prioritized target list, and we're going to take a hit. And I've spent time in Guam, by the way, probably almost about six trips there. Wonderful people. Um, I would say that we'd have to have the ability, and it's, and it's kind of a tiered response. And what I mean by that is you would need to bake into the infrastructure the ability to regenerate capability and to harden the facilities on Guam. Uh, and again, protected with anti-ballistic missile defense, anti-aircraft capability, any type of missiles that you know the Chinese could throw at us, you know, any type of potential counter to that. So it's hardened and regenerative to be survivability. And that all this goes into the realm of you know, you know, being prepared. But I think the next thing we need to do is look at our logistics. Intel prep of the battle space, look at all that key littoral terrain. And are there other places that we, that multiple places that we can bed down logistics, bed down, but be very responsive and be able to move for via various modes of transportation? And are there other locations we can go to to confuse the enemy target set? Because though they have a lot of missiles, at some point, if you disperse enough, you harden, you go to different, multiple different locations. That in itself could confuse or deter the enemy's ability to, to literally, you know, wipe out your ability on a place like Guam. So harden, you know, you want it survivable. You want uh, anti-lethality uh, capabilities to go against that. But I think the key thing is to have other places to go. And an example of this is something more for Marine Force Pacific is doing. It's an initiative called GPN, Global Positioning Network. And if you look in our past in the Marine Corps, in history, you know, we had MPF ships, you know, which ton of material, great utility in, you know, Desert Storm and the fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you had MPF ships. Then you had things like Norway, where you had NALMEB, which was a big footprint of equipment up in Norway in the caves, very much hardened and, a, you know, and very capable uh, capacity and capability there. But I think with the GPN, because we're going to less and less uh, ships, both MPF and AMFIB, so we want to position equipment throughout the Pacific, but you'd have to position it in such a way that 
small target array. I mean, you're not presenting a big picture, you know, come destroy me, literally. You know, you want to be able to disperse that equipment, but make it survivable. But again, create enough locations in Australia, in the Philippines, in Singapore, that, you know, the Chinese will go, wow, if I unleash hostilities, I'm going to have to now go against, you know, multiple allies and partners. And the U.S. has done their homework in terms of putting these equipment sets in multiple locations, hardening those, making them survivable, and then having a regenerative capability. And that comes in two forms. It's not only regenerative in terms of they're on Guam, in terms of engineers, you know, fixing things, but having in the pipeline, you know, through the much criticized at times defense industrial base, but having in the pipeline other equipment and material ready and responsive to be flowed into theater to make up for that equipment that's been lost. Yeah. That's a very interesting contingency plan. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, very uh, insightful and, you know, very thought provoking. But, uh, you know, I, my next question is sort of on other contingency plans. I mean, the one thing that I noticed, right, is you're, we're talking about geographical places, land based uh, places. Uh, you know, say we lose access to those ports, we move to another port, it feels like to me, at least, you know, in my non-military background, that another land location will be another target, right? And like, of course, you talked about how that'll be distributed. But I mean, are there any sort of uh, contingencies, perhaps even conceptual, about like, you know, where you can sort of maintain at least some of these supply chains, you know, while at sea, while without, you know, these land-based places? Yeah, great question. We're going to get you in the Marine Corps. I'm going to have you enlist here soon. <laughs> We're becoming awesome. Now, that was a great question. So th- this this gets really into the conceptual and the theoretical. And, and again, bear with me on this vignette, but it, it leads to where you're going. Sure. Just did, you know, doing some research for this talk and, and in line with the work that I do, I, I never realized, but I found out in history that the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor a second time in uh, the spring of 1942. Now, it was just several seaplanes. And you're sitting there going, how could they do that? I mean, how, why why could the why didn't the U.S. Uh, be prepared for that? But what they did is standoff distance is the the seaplanes landed at a point far off from uh, Pearl Harbor, and a Japanese submarine came up, surfaced, and refueled the two seaplanes. If you think about that, that's you know brilliant. That's a float logistics, and that's where I'm going is. If you look at us historically, especially Vietnam, we created a float lily pads that for the Army, for Army helicopters and for Navy operations, uh, especially in the rivers and off the coast of Vietnam, these were lily pads of float locations that provided sustainment to aviation, the small boats. So the, the thought here is, is there, and again, this is conceptual, but is there a way to make a su- semi-submersible very large lily pad that could be a supply chain node and a platform to service aircraft with ordnance and with fuel, a forward arming or refueling point. And it, and this might sound fanciful, but this is years ago. But I remember when I was head of logistics, we talked to John Hopkins and they had this platform unmanned drone called the Kraken. And the Kraken kind of looked like, I'm not doing it justice, but it's like R2D2 on steroids. But it's a drone. That's a visual. What you do is you could send dozens of these, sink them on what they're flying. Then let's say off of the island in the Philippines, they could go to the littoral floor 30, 40 feet underwater, sit there for weeks on end, but then hit the trigger, so to speak, activate them, and then they're, they're carrying sustainment. They can lift and then support forces ashore. So I think, and, and then if you go on a related note, you know, for this lily pad option is there's ways, and I know you're going to ask this later, but I want to hit it now, is if you look at available commercial shipping, is what's amazing in the Civil War, we spent millions, and this is $1,862, paying for coastal ships and steamships to move troops and materiel throughout, you know, the theater of operations. So you think about what the Brits did in the Falcons and took commercial ships rapidly converted them to military use, you know, to launch carriers, to carry, again, logistics, vehicle sustainment. And this is within weeks, you know, they're transforming these vessels. 
And I think that every time, at least some people in the military, I'm not going to draw a broad brush, but it's always like, well, it's got to be an NPF ship. It has yeah. to be an amphib. And we certainly do need both. But until we get that, I think we should be looking at commercial shipping to create other options of mo- you know, other modalities to move people, cargo things from point A to point B. And that lily pad concept, I mean, think of a lily pad that's also a mothership for unmanned drones. Yeah. Both sea, subsea, air, and land. Because the less humans I can have, you get a twofer. Less humans, less food, less water, less medical care, most importantly, less casualties, most importantly, right? And so if you're replacing human beings with these autonomous platforms unmanned, the potential is unlimited. No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, that floating lily pad is a very interesting concept. And and surely, you know, we're going to be talking about this in just a few minutes. But I mean, this is going to have to integrate some of the commercial world and some of the innovations that are happening in the commercial world. But before we move on to that topic, I guess, you know, we've been talking about all these challenges uh, for the first half of this interview. Uh, For the second half, I sort of want to talk more about these, you know, potential solutions or how we can begin to address uh, some of these challenges and building on the work that has been done done already by folks in the private and the public sector and in the military and outside of the military. But I guess, you know, over the past five years, in sort of your view, what have been some of the positive things uh, done that have enabled our military to really address some of these, you know, aforementioned uh, key challenges? You mentioned some of them, but uh, if we could scope that down. Yeah. So I'd say the first most promising thing, I think the most... uh, practical and uh, it can be implemented soon is Marine Forces specific and the other services I'm sure are doing this, but I'm very, you know, laser focused on the Marine Corps. But in terms of developing ways to determine and forecast required logistics requirements, Marine Forces specific has done a, a great job. Uh, this, they have a platform called Ferry Dust Fighter and that where that comes from is, you know, logisticians in the Marine Corps always get, um, somewhat upset when they're at these big exercises because what the uh, operational forces will do is, oh, logistics, it's, you know, it's taken care of. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Where in real life, you really have to worry about it and you really have to do your detailed planning. So ferry dust fighter is an ability, is a pro platform that's like, no, we're not going to ferry dust logistics. We're going to really determine what the requirements are. And I think with what Marine Forces Pacific is doing is if you look at requirements writ large they're aggregating all those requirements they're analyzing those they're prioritizing it and then in in the future what they'll be able to do is use technology as is done in the private sector to design and model the optimal logistics support to get that sustainment from point a to point b i mean the railroads do this the trucking industry does this i mean they they literally plug in hey here's what's got to move from point a to point b Hey, this is six rail cars, 14 TTs, you know, four other trucks for follow-on movement. They're they're literally taking a page out of that private sector playbook to really kind of figure out the requirements in an aggregation, prioritization, and fulfillment way. And I, and that's really powerful. I think the second thing is I'm slowly seeing, thanks to a lot of great work by colonels and several of the generals, is a move towards really exploiting and leveraging joint logistics, what they call the joint logistics enterprise, the JLIN. Because what's often heard, you know, when I was younger, anytime you're in a group, and this is either in a combat situation or in an exercise, you'd always hear the hey, logistics is the service responsibility. In other words, each service is supposed to take care of logistics. The problem with that is it immediately, again, has a subliminal default thing of, well, if the service is taking care of their stuff, as the Army, the Navy, the Air Force say, they're going to take care of themselves, and this applies to all of us, and I'm just going to worry about me. And that's natural. But what I'm seeing in, in Indo-PACOM is a movement to really look at things through a joint logistics enterprise lens, which includes Defense Logistics Agency, U.S. Transportation Command, who has tremendous capability, and thinking through, okay, if we're going to do that bed down in the Pacific, and if we're going to be operating in this mesh design way, Optimal way to do it is to bring different service capabilities together. And we did this to agree a really long time ago in Somalia. 
where you had, you know, the Air Force and I was with a landing support company and it's had, we had engineers and we worked together to provide fuel, firefighting, you know, ring wing support squadron type things, but all the functionalities that you needed to run an airfield, we worked together. That's the model, you know, for the future in my mind. So said so determining requirements, leveraging the joint logistics enterprise. Another thing I think that I'm really motivated by is the level of thinking on the majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels. And there's been a lot of articles. There was just a War on the Rocks article where the CEO of Blunt Island, which is where our Marine prepositioned ships refit, he wrote a fantastic article on sustaining the force, you know, in a contested logistics environment. Uh, Rear Admiral English and the Joint Staff J4, he's leaning into it, Transcom's leaning into it, Pat Fleet's leaning into it. So the point being is logistics, though I think it's really cool, a lot of people are just like, you know, logistics, you know, but it's not, it's really interesting and it's exciting. And what these thought leaders are doing to me is they're breaking new ground and looking at the problem in a different way. Because if we look at logistics in the Pacific in a China fight, there's lessons to be learned from World War II, from Korea, Vietnam, from our Afghanistan experience. But I'd argue that we really need to look at the problem set in a different way. And in a perfect world, and they're doing this, and if you're, we were co-located physically, is if we got on a whiteboard and it was completely clean, China fight. And by the way, with the China fight, you have to determine what are you trying to achieve? What's victory look like? I mean, because mm-hmm. that's going to drive what the operations look like. Yeah. By the way, I think that's really hard to define and describe. But if we're going to get into a fight against China, you know, be it a Taiwan fight, hope to God never, or in another part of the theater, South China Sea, a dust up, you know, with the reclaimed islands area, we would want to really think through, okay, do we understand what the operational forces are trying to achieve? You know, what are we trying to do? And then are we manned, trained, equipped, and organized to execute that support plan and support of operational forces? Certainly. And I mean, you know, you bring up a lot of good points and a lot of thought leaders, and we want to definitely talk to some of those thought leaders, uh, you know, as this sort of podcast miniseries ensues. Uh, But, you know, in developing these solutions, these strategies, these alternative solutions and strategies, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that the DOD faces? Yeah, I think the problem we have is we have just a wonderful military and, uh, a lot of smart people, but it's always, you know, form follows function, right? And I'm not sure that form follows function the way we're currently organized for capability development in the military. And a lot of people senior to me have written articles and, you know, thrown flaming spears at, you know, how we do capability development in the U.S. military. And I think to to some degree that's howling at the moon because you really just need to find a way to make the system work. Uh, but what I find interesting is, you know, we create things like DIU, uh, which great organization, love working with them, AFWorks. But it's interesting. It's the wrong way of saying it, but these are like almost like extrajudicial judicial organizations. In other words, there's a process, you know, but we're going to create these new organizations to make this process work better. And, I, and I'm not interested, I'm not always convinced that that's the case because in terms of flash to bang for capability development, what I call the cost schedule performance paradigm for capability development, we tend to be over cost. We tend to be kind of not meeting our schedule requirements. And the performance sometimes great, you know, like an M1 tank back in the day, sometimes not so great. And where I'm going with all this is I just think that in the logistics realm, in the unmanned portfolio, unlimited potential. And that's where we ought to be spending money. In the added manufacturing 3D printing, which brings the factory closer to the foxhole, another area, no-brainer, unlimited potential. Okay, So you've got added manufacturing, you've got, um, and then the next one, I'm sorry, is artificial intelligence. And this really ties into, and everybody's talking about AI. I'll admit I'm a poli-sci major, uh, you know, not, not an engineer. <laughs> but if you look at logistics, command, and control, and everything that we're trying to do in terms of requirements and create modeling, design, provision, and support, you know, AI has the potential to provide transparency over all of your equipment, supplies, and sustainment, and then through predictive analytics 
and through mod and again additional uh, dual technology, uh, excuse me, not dual technology, tw digital twin technology is the ability to do that predictive maintenance and really uh, increase maintenance capability, aircraft, vehicles, everything else. So those are the three areas we probably really ought to be focused on. I think, at least, you know, Marine Corps wise, you know, logistically, which you know the Marine Corps essentially is. But just to get from point A to point B in the uh, in the capability development realm, it just takes a long time. I mean, when I was in Afghanistan, we had KMAX, which is a unmanned helicopter, which is literally wooden wooden rotor, wooden, 19, late nineteen fifties technology, and that. That was just like a Chevy, 1984 Chevy truck. Okay, just move and sustainment in Helmand Province, right? Didn't have to put vehicles on the road. I can move it that way. So that's an example of today, there's companies out there that are producing aircraft like that K-Max, similar, that have incredible capability, but it takes years to bring it to the forefront. And I'll close by saying this on this question is, if you look at World War, pre-World War II, 1920s, the Navy, uh, it's called the General Board. Counterintuitive, it's a Navy entity, it's called the General Board. But in the 20s, they looked at capabilities, especially logistics, oilers, uh, you know, ammo ships. They came up with all these ideas in the 20s and then got resourcing You know, once you know, the threat from the Axis was coming on the horizon in the 30s. And they were able to produce all these things in what I call record time. And we, we don't have that capability today. So how do you fix it? I think through a Goldwater Nichols-like change, new legislation, you know, ways to, because you know, the thing is, the people in the Pentagon aren't bad people. They're saluting to the Federal Acquisition Regulation book, you know, that's about, you know, 10 feet deep. And they're, you know, you know, they're complying with the rules and regulations. So how do you get around that? Change the rules and regulations and adjust them through legislation. I think that's the answer because otherwise we're howling at the moon. No, yeah. And and I mean, like, you know, when we're also talking about, you know, how we can potentially partner with the commercial sector, I feel like, you know, when you're looking at some industries like the cargo shipping industry, for example, you know, the military's goals in developing some solutions may not necessarily align with what's the most economically or financially viable for, you know, some of these industries. So, I mean, you know, when you have a gap like that, right, like, especially if you're talking about cargo shipping, how do you actually incentivize the private sector if you're from the DOD? Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's a fantastic question. And I would say that, again, going back in, in a historic lens, is if you look at the Higgins boat, a lot of the landing craft in World War II, those were private sector companies that looked at, you know, Japanese landing craft, which were actually very good that they were using in China in the 30, late 30s. And they literally were like, hey, hey, U.S. government, okay, we will work with you. Here's a great design that really works well. You know, and by the way, I won't ask for a lot of money now, but once we go into production, you know, you're going to have to obviously pay for what you get. And I think it was back then, it was almost force of personality, you know, the, the ability to get that, that partnership with the private sector. Same thing with Liberty ships, right? You know, because the, the contracts started flowing. But at the end of the day, and, and you said this, I'm just repeating it back to a degree, is the only way you're going to incentivize the private sector is with money. I mean, they're, they're, paid, they're great patriots and they're, they want to help. But at the end of the day, and this is what I've learned. I've been now retired four years. I buy several companies, which are really interesting, cool companies. But the incentive structure in the military is nothing you don't know is so different than what the incentive structure is in the private sector. They have to report to a board. You know, they've got the folks that own their stock. You know, it's, it's all about performance at the end of the day. So I think the only, you know, when you gave me that question earlier, and I've really been thinking about it, I think that with, you know, the incentive design would be dual use, for lack of a better term, right? Dual use technology is, hey, if I, if, I create ships that have um, AI-enhanced cranes, okay, that in a rolling sea state will be very, very capable of lifting off cargo. That's military cargo, and that's commercial cargo. Okay? If there's container ships that I normally carry literally thousands of containers, but I will allow the government at a very reasonable fee to put I'm making this number up, 200 containers 
some of which are kind of like what Dell has just came out with, which are 40-foot containers that are literally an uh, uh, internet cafe in a box. You know, now think that, move that forward to, hey, that could be a command and control uh, entity within a 40-footer on, on a container ship. I mean, I just think looking for ways to explore that dual-use uh, ability so when we're not in a fight, that the private sector can use it. And if you Google oil barges, Arctic, because, you know, with global warming, in theory, we're going to be able to transit some of those areas up north. Oil companies are looking, hey, where can we now uh, dig, uh, excuse me, drill for oil? Well, these platforms that they have up there, they're like a landing craft air cushion, but they're a civilian. They're not military. Mm-hmm. And they're huge. I mean, you could fit, you know, five, six MV-22s on that. You could put multiple vehicles on there. You could put 40-foot containers. So it's it's, the, it's what I heard in Afghanistan from a British general. He always said, in the military, it's always about the power of combinations. And it's the power of, you know, like if you and I sitting in a shipyard, either in San Diego, Long Beach, Amsterdam, you pick it, and just looking at all the different capabilities they have, and then looking at military requirements and going, you know what? That big barge they're using for the oil rig, we could put that and make that a mobile command post. We could put launch Tama, yeah, excuse me, we can launch missiles off of that. I mean, the combinations are endless. And I think that's one thing, again, that history shows us is those governments and militaries that could combine different things real well. I think the Germans in the 30s, you know, with Blitzkrieg, you know, or Jackie Fisher, Royal Navy, you know, turn of the century, he could see different things on the technology horizon in the private sector and the military sector and go, hey, if I combine torpedoes with a submarine, radar with my battleship, I mean, all these different things that come together, that's how you 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 gain competitive advantage. So sorry for the excursions I'm doing lately, but just wanted to cover that. Oh, they're very interesting excursions and excursions <laughs> further. And I'm sure we can take multiple episodes to discuss some of those excursions. Uh, but, you know, as we close out this uh, session, which has been a great session, by the way, so thank you so much. Uh, I mean, you know, you talk about in terms of what needs to change, you talk about maybe a new Goldwater Nichols Act, you talk about uh, you know, changing some laws, regulations, and policies, uh, especially with regards to federal acquisitions. Uh, you know, are there any powers or roles that specific branches of the armed services uh, need to be assigned? You know, in this or should be assigned? And like, say, you know, are there any like organizations, both like within or outside of those armed services branches, that should be over? Uh, you know, empowered uh, to overcome these challenges? Yeah. So t- two answers to that. Uh, and they're not in opposition, but I just think uh, give you options. I would say, again, looking historically, if you look at the discretionary funds that were provided to senior leaders in the military, pre-World War II, even post-World War II, uh, they had a lot of latitude. I mean, they could literally do experimentation on their own. And within, I mean, there's oversight there. I mean, they're not going to like go home with a bag of money just because they've got the money. I mean, they're using that that those funds for good war fighting potential reasons, right? And they had that. So I think you know, if you looked at you know the DOD budget and where all the money is and how it's controlled and and what I call um, satisfied, in other words, a satisfied solution to fiscal expenditure. Because not to get into fiscal speak, but it's very tightly controlled through what they call picks and you know, there's a certain, you, you literally have very, in the military, in the service, have very little, little, excuse me, discretionary funding that you can go to the Marine Corps War Funding Lab and say, hey, here's a hundred million. And I want you to look at unmanned sea, subsea, air and land for logistics. I mean, we do do a little bit of that, but to me, it's woefully underfunded. So you'd, you'd want to provide um, that ability for them to have those discretionary funds. And then you talked about organizations. I, you know, I, I, well, I was not criticizing because I'm a big fan, but DIU, the SCO, AFWorks, all very good, good vehicles for good innovation and, and capabilities are coming down the line. The Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, uh, the CD&I that does experimentation at, you know, with the lab. These are all positive things. But I, ju- I just think that 
and, and this, and bear with me, but the way that we're organized for capability development, and this is Robert Strange McNamara's child, right? Because he was the PBE guy, you know, worked for Ford, doesn't work for the military, in my opinion, not that well today. But if, if you look at that huge DOD budget, you've got combatant commanders that have a vote and what they want, then services, because they have man training equipped, what they want. Okay, then so you, then you got the joint staff, you know, in which the chairman and all the, the J codes, they all have a kind of a different picture on what the requirements are. So that just that process, again, is a satisfice process because it, it just to me, it dilutes. An optimist would say that you get a good product out of that at the end. Pessimists would say that that to a degree dilutes the innovation and experimentation and the requirements that a service chief by law is tasked to provide. So I think that this all goes back to Goldwater Nichols 2.0. How do we change capability development? Because Goldwater Nichols really just changed the joint organization of the force and forced it to be joint. Now we need to attack capability development. So as we close out this interview, do you have any final thoughts, any reflections, you know, on this <laughs> conversation, sort of to sum it all up? Yeah. Well, I've, I've given you like 6,000 points of light, which is, <laughs> this is the team that I always work with. They said, General Dana, your attention deficit, but, you know, at least we learn something every time you talk because I can be attention deficit. But what I would say is here's another goal or Nichols 2.04. It's got nothing to do with logistics. I, I also think that, the all-volunteer force, which is incredible, the talent that we have and how great it is, that might be worth a relook also. Because, you know, if I'm running a logistics at a strategic level in Hawaii, do I want a guy or a gal who did eight years, 10 years with Maersk and was their shipping COO, right? I mean, where I'm going with this one is I want the, – I mean, the young folks are great, but when it comes to – the higher end technology. I want a young man or woman that's got five, 10 years. I want you, <laughs> you know, University of Michigan. I mean, I want top tier talent. And here's the thing. I'm only going to grab you for two years. I mean, it's not going to be forever, but I just think that leveraging that type of talent for high end logistics thinking, you know, that would complement the great stuff that the young troops are putting together at the tactical end. So food for thought. Maybe howl at the moon again. So, but that's where I'm at. Definitely. Well, Lieutenant General Dana, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been a very lively discussion on <laughs> logistics. You know, folks, we're going to have more uh, interviews and sessions coming up with great experts. But Lieutenant General, once again, thank you for your time. Thanks, Andre. Thanks for what you're doing. It's a great effort. Appreciate it. Have a great day.